Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. You should be able to find on a piece of paper in the center of your table. any particular topics, there is a suggestion box in the lobby. You can write your ideas on there, and they may or may not be accommodated. Um, I would like to invite Lauren and Linda back up for a question period. Um, If you have a question, you can come up to this microphone over here. Please keep your introduction minimal and limit yourself to one or two topical questions. We will cut you off. So... Maria Fitzpatrick, uh, and I hope you don't cut me off right away. Uh, Okay, first of all, I'm going to say that 1,200 missing and murdered women is almost half the number of people who were killed on 9-11, and the fact that our government doesn't see that as extraordinary uh, totally boggles my mind, because they certainly should. Uh, Now, what I want to say. I listened as I drove home from Edmonton yesterday to an interview on CBC with Chris Hedges, who has uh, done a book about uh, the violence in the U.S. And he talked about the U.S. being founded on genocide and slavery. And I certainly see some parallels in Canada. And when you talk about Uh, the structural violence and how that's all set up. Uh, It's certainly, uh, when you think about it, it certainly makes sense. But my question to you is, um, it sounds like we need an action plan, and it sounds like that's what you're talking about. And my question to you is, what can I do as a community person and as an individual? And anything that I can do, Uh, I want to participate in, and I think that you'll find uh, that that sentiment is prevalent in Lethbridge, as we've recently found out. So whoever would like to answer that question. All right, so uh, with kind of what we've been working on with uh, True Contact Voices, which is the organization that's kind of put out these three documentaries, Um, And we've also been organizing some rallies, um, and we organize a panel as well. But I think when these these kinds of things come up, and they do come up quite a bit, um, it's it's great to have a lot of support there and to have people who are paying attention to when uh, things like these come up. So when um, Cindy Gladue's case came up in the news, um, I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with it, but uh, Cindy Gladue was a sex worker who was killed in her hotel room 
and uh, her the person who was responsible for her death um, eventually walked free in uh, in her death. So um, we kind of organized a rally here in Lethbridge, and people people kind of come together in their own communities to try and um, start conversation and start uh, doing things. Like we sent letters to the the Crown Prosecutor and stuff. But I think. Paying attention to the indigenous movements and helping amplify that indigenous voice is an important part of it. But uh, True Contact Voices, we have uh, started collecting a list of supporters and making sure that everyone's kind of aware of what we're we're doing. And so I think just to tell your support to these organizations is important so that we can kind of come together when we need to. Uh, for these sorts of things. Thank you for the, your question, Maria. Hi, my name is uh, <coughs> Knut Peterson. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, relate to us what some of the findings has been, uh, some of the recommendations that has been uh, put forward by different commissions over the years to to deal with this issue uh, that have not been acted upon. Could you uh, maybe relate some of those uh, findings and and uh, tell us maybe maybe you don't know why they haven't been acted upon, but at least it would be nice to find out what those recommendations are that, that might have made a difference if they've been acted upon. Okay, there's been several... Um reports that have been done in Canada, in various parts of Canada, in regards to Indigenous women's issues. Probably the most famous one, or the most well-known one, it was done recently in Vancouver uh, as a result of the pig farm issue and the sex trade workers that were Aboriginal that were from the uh, Vancouver East Side. Now, uh, those reports all end up with recommendations, but we have not seen anything acted on. Uh, The recommendations uh, emerge. There's minor, if any, response. There may be comments as to, you know, what the findings are. Uh, the issue that was in Vancouver was in and around the policing and the search, uh, search of the area and whatnot, and notice to some of the family members. A lot of concerns were raised, and it became highly political, even how that inquiry was structured. And I believe a lot of the Indigenous Aboriginal groups withdrew from that inquiry. Uh, so highly contentious and not that productive. As a result of that, I think that those have fueled that kind of attitude at the federal level towards the reluctance to hold the inquiry. And uh, I suggest that those are are specific inquiries done for specific uh, areas and concerns that are there. What we're proposing is something bigger and broader we want to look at a, a social construct, and hence the structural mm-hmm. violence uh, is a possibility of a focus for the Royal Commission so that we can deconstruct perhaps the history and start to look at uh, those larger pictures. Um, I'm Trevor Page. 
of course I'm appalled by the government's lack of interest in getting into a commission to discover what is at the root cause of 1,200 women that are just missing. Whether it's royal or not, we need to know the answers. I have a bit of a problem, though, with your hypothesis that structural violence may be at the root cause of the problem. To me, it's more racial prejudice. But looking to the future, and perhaps over the next 10 to 20 to 50 years, how do you see Canada? Do you see the abolishment of reserves and status for indigenous people, and there being just one people? Or do you see uh, that not happening? Are you not in favor of that? Okay. Okay, so let's see. There's several parts to your question there. Um, yes, the future. And first of all, I'd like to... Uh, say that I believe that the structural violence issue is hypothetically possible. And I also believe that our government has the potential of making change. And let me give you an example. During World War I and II, the attitude about women's role in society, you're supposed to stay home and you're supposed to take care of the kids. All they had to do when the government needed the energy of women in the factories was set up a great big postering thing and, you know, we need you, get out there, come and work. And women became welders. They became <laughs> machinists. I believe that the government has tremendous power over the attitudes of people in society. And I believe... Once we take a look at this, that it's a good uh, lever in order to focus some change. That's one. The other question about the reserves. My sense is, if I'm to take the position of academia, indigenous academics, we believe that there will be three governments in Canada. And that will be provincial, federal, and aboriginal. Right now, you're seeing the formation of indigenous organizations paralleling every single service in Canada, policing, social services, housing. And you're also seeing middle-level governance systems being structured here in Alberta. We've got a, a, a provincial level of health care that's now uh, administering things. You're seeing that development happening all across Canada. My sense is that the, all of those will link together in this timeline, and no, the reserves won't go away. Okay. That's my hypothesis. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, great presentation. My name is Joseph Natuk. Uh, I'd kind of like to get a, a different twist to it. Have you seen anything positive happening in the last 50 years in, in regard our, with regard to our uh, ability to work with you folks and vice versa, I think it would be very critical to uh, look at the positive instead of the negatives. I know there's all yeah. kinds of negatives, but we have to look ahead and build on the positives. And I really would like you to 
really focus on that more than than the negatives. Thank you. That's really great. And, you know, um, one of the issues that I have is with media because the media is always looking at our problems, the roadblocks, our health problems, the social issues. You know, we have some wonderful stories of success that uh, we can relate all across Canada. We have our own newspaper systems. You should pick up some of our newspapers and start reading about the incredible, you know, and beautiful uh, developments that are occurring. The problem is, is that we've ended up with these very um, siloed ways of living, but it's happening. And, you know, as I travel back and forth across Canada, one of the remarkable things that I see is the incredible development Every single city has close to 60, 70, maybe 100, 150 agencies and organizations that are providing services to our people. Incredible work. Beautiful uh, agencies that include the Aboriginal way or the worldview. And so they treat the people different when they come there. And as a matter of fact, they've become, they've become quite attractive to the non-Aboriginal people because we welcome everybody. We're trying to turn you all into Indians. That's our goal. <laughs> Great goal. <laughs> uh, I'm Mary Shillington. I'm a retired clinical social worker that worked with Aboriginal people around the, for, uh, the residential school and, and abuse issues. Um, so... I really agree with your structural violence uh, hypothesis and uh, see it still happening uh, with many people. And uh, uh, so I really thank both of you, you very gifted and and well-spoken women, for presenting this information. So uh, my, like even the discussion at our table, there was some discussion about whether people believed in the structural violence. Uh, And so then we were sharing some stories. And, and so as we share those stories, because you're such a storytelling people, and, and many of us are too, uh, how can we uh, help other people to really see this so that we're prepared to do something about it? So that's my question. Okay, and that's why I believe this commission needs to be drafted so that we can make all of these elements clear so that we can find these places where the, not just where the violence is occurring, because that's where we're looking at right now, but the, but the ex- external, the outside, the, the tentacles, you know, in society that have created those. And, and that would be the purpose of the Royal Commission, so that all of us will know how we can address this. Because I believe we're all um, kind of part of the system, as long as we don't question it, then we continue to perpetuate the actions. And it's only through awareness and understanding that we can actually uh, turn the boat <laughs> and start to go in a different direction. But without some tangible, tangible ways of being able to make change, I think um, Lauren has, uh, has raised some of the key issues uh, some of them are, are definitely embedded in the social service area and the way it's approached uh, that's causing some of the continuing and intergenerational issues. Uh, th- those are just some of the subjects, and I believe that that's what we need to find out. So good question. 
Hi, my name is Peter Beal, and uh, I'd like to look at this more in a, in a larger issue, like how do you feel about this concept of general violence towards women, like we just had the report on the military, the RCMP reporters being assault, you know, verbally assaulted in front of a football game. So that question is how does it lead into our general structure? And the other part of the question would be, uh, does the reserve system make non-reserve people devalue Native women so that instead of just viol sexual violence, it becomes murder, you know, like that it goes to further things. So uh, do, does the general population think less of Natives like a racial thing? So how, how can we integrate? Like there seems to be a general... You know, I think it's envy of women as they raise their status. And I, I wonder if you can address that concept between the general population and also the specific violence against the native women. All right. Um, so to kind of address the the idea of, like, the devaluing of indigenous women, um, I think a lot of that comes with uh, the loss of culture um, and the, the, the colonial ways that uh, indigenous people have lost touch with, uh, with their culture. And, um, because a lot of that, the culture talks about how vital women are to the First Nations community. Um, we're the life givers and we're, uh, we're a vital part um, to that community, I think. So um, when when the when that is lost um, among ourselves, it's especially lost with other people. And um, when people look at indigenous people um, being maybe a little bit weaker because of these these systems that have been working against us, I think that as well kind of contributes to um, the the loss of value is when they see. Uh, homeless, the homeless population, um, as well as the the population that struggles to just live their everyday lives um, because of the the lack of support. I think. Um, and maybe do you want to address the the rest of that question? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, traditionally, Aboriginal women held very strong positions in their communities. Okay, Blackfoot women were equal with their male counterparts. As a matter of fact, we thought we were even higher up, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they'll 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 challenge us on that one. But at least we were, you know, they there were things that they could do, and there was things that we had responsibility for, and they could not, you know, mess around with that. Anyway, <laughs> and out in the east, they were matriarchal systems, so the problem has been. They forced a hierarchical, patriarchal system through the Indian Act on all the reserves. One model fit it all, and they put put that model, the chief and council model, in every single reserve. All 642 of them all look the same today, okay? That system was very patriarchal and uh, male-dominant. Indian agents and now chief and council, and they're enforcing the Indian Act. That's That's colonial. And that's uh, uh, a system that still exists. So when they talk about colonialism and post-colonialism, for the 
majority of the population, right? As soon as you got the British North America Act, you became, you were no longer a colony, right? You now became Canada with some, some rights and powers. You, for the general population, think that, that, think that at that point in time, colonialism ended. For us, that's not true. A document was drafted, a colonial document, which is the Indian Act, the most pervasive and expansive document that exists in legislation in Canada, and it still exists. When my auntie passed away and she wanted to will her stuff and I helped her draft her will, who calls me? Ottawa. Every single person that passes away on the reserve all of their wills are intervened by Ottawa. We can't even will our stuff to one another without the intervention of Ottawa. I mean, we are still under colonial legislation. So while the majority of the population is not, we live in a very different world. Okay. Women, as a result of these um, problematic pressures around us, have suffered probably the worst because they lost all their power in their communities and, you know, through the Indian Act, for a hundred years they were completely suppressed. Any work, even any paintings that were even done of Aboriginal people were always just of all the men with their headdresses. No women. If there was a woman, it might be Indian woman and child. <laughs> Not even a name given to us. So that reduction in placement has created that kind of tension, plus the violence in the residential schools and whatnot. Uh, when you add all those layers, Aboriginal women are probably the, the worst uh, and most violated, <laughs> most discriminated against, and, and probably the, the group that suffers most not just at the hands of, of male counterparts, but of society, too. Hello, my name is Frank Toth. I want to personally congratulate both of you for your tremendous ability to send the message. I was fortunate as a youth to live next door to a band of Blackfoot First Nations people. We learned so much, especially from the seniors, how to protect the earth and their ability to live on Mother Nature only and help it out. But uh, I just wonder if it would help your message. I'm not uh, trying to be a smart ass, okay? <laughs> but uh, if you would emphasize our great leader, Mr. Harper's ironic, uh, what's the right word? salient fight for uh, tough on crime. But he's not protecting the most important uh, people in Canada, for God's sakes, that built this nation that we've taken over and, and a hog, so to speak, okay? Uh, the irony of it is, is terrible. Tough on crime. Don't even let people know uh, on the other hand, who owns a gun so to help the police? But if that message of, of, of uh, his tough on crime, how come he doesn't look after the whole 
whole nation as a, as a whole. Congratulations. You've been asked the same question. How can we get a groundswell to help, to help uh, and get this, get this evidence proven to all Canadians? Thank you. You know, it, it, th that question is being raised several times and maybe what we're going to do and uh, uh, we'll talk afterwards and maybe we'll create a, not just a website but a, a place where people can uh, add their names to uh, a list so that we can notify you of various uh, events that are happening or we can ask you if you want to uh, take part in any kind of a letter thing or a notification or just to be involved. If you want to be involved, we'll, of course, make, make that a possibility. Okay. Thank you. It's uh, Joseph again here. Joseph Natuk. I hope I'm not becoming a pain, but <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I'm really uh, I hear you is talking about the federal government all the time. And to me, it's it's uh, kind of concerning because I know the feds are important to all of us, but are they still that much of a control? Uh, do you see any progress being made? Did you become part of Canada as a, as an individual, as a society? Because to me, it's you know, <laughs> I think if it's not happening, it should be happening. So, can you just give us an opinion, or me an opinion, or us as a group here? An opinion of what you think about how far we are from that being a realistic uh, expectation that it's not First Nations, it's, it's Canadians. Thank you. Um, so I think uh, the, the federal governments, um, the way that they have addressed this issue or they have uh, failed to address this issue, I guess, um, I think that's uh, another big harmful thing that is happening right now is just the way that this issue is being responded to. And um, just the way that uh, Stephen Harper addressed this issue by saying that it's not high on his radar, and that's, that's what he said about this issue of missing a murdered Indigenous woman. Um, so I think that that's adding to the violence against Indigenous women. Um, but... Uh, with this recent bill coming up, Bill C-51 happening and um, nothing being done to address this issue, I think that that as well is, is uh, a form of violence uh, against us is just ignoring this issue uh, that is happening and putting forward a, a bill to protect us but not protecting our Indigenous women while we keep going missing or, or uh, being found murdered. I think um, that's a very harmful thing that's been happening. But uh, I think Linda wants to address the legal part of this question. Yeah. Um, not so much murdered and missing women, but Aboriginal peoples in general and the clout that they have uh, at a, a federal, provincial level. And that is we've been winning court cases uh, quite quite. Uh, Profoundly, almost uh, they they know that we're going to be winning all the rest of them too, because the law is uh, establishing itself, and uh, with those wins, suddenly the government realizes, oh gee, they do have legal rights. 
oh, gee, they do still own the land if they didn't write a treaty or they didn't, you know, properly take the land. And they can't just shove us away or hope that we get assimilated or get rid of our status and whatnot. And so those winds are kind of the backdrop that makes our voice a little bit stronger here. Without those, I doubt very much that even, you know, I, I, I would suggest that if the court cases didn't happen in 1970, the Calder cases and whatnot, that establishes that we have an interest in rights in the land, that I highly doubt that even our Department of Native Studies would be much more than just a history place. So it's been through these winds and the push in every single nation. And these little nations, the average size of a reserve is only 350 people, okay? You're kind of surrounded by anomalies right now. <clears throat> but the average reserve is only 350. Those little reserves are taking forward gigantic, gigantic, huge, multi, multi-million dollar cases and winning them and transforming Indigenous rights on a global scale. So Canada is actually leading the way in many, many ways in regards to her voice. Avatanas, thank you for your presentation. <clears throat> in the last five years, I've met so many warriors from First Nations, all women, with a passion for justice. I'm greatly encouraged that eventually we, have a, we may have a better society. We talk for an hour here about issues I have to agree with because they are real. But we have not touched on the underlying cause, the root cause of all this, what's happening. I believe that the reluctance from the government to uh, install an inquiry or to have a national inquiry lies in the doctrine of discovery. Now, many of you may not know about the doctrine of discovery. The doctrine of discovery grew out of bad theology from the church, a series of papal declarations in the 15th century which give European kings and their representatives the right to take possession of newly discovered lands because the inhabitants that lived there were of a different color, a different face, and they were considered lower quality creatures than humans, thereby dehumanizing whole continents like Africa, North America, and South America. So when Sir John A. MacDonald and his conservatives sat down to, to establish a government and a nation, they acted like thieves and robbers, stealing their land and robbing the inhabitants of their dignity. Sir Wilfred Laurier, standing on the plains of Abram 20 years later, speaking of a free and equal society, may have had a different idea. 
But it wasn't until the Honorable Pierre Alliot Trudeau drafted the Charter of Freedom, Freedom and Rights, which made us equal in theory. It needs a lot more enlightenment to bring this into practice. Maybe the Colonial Court was a small beginning of this. We, my ancestors in the Netherlands, fought an 80-year war against the same principle, eventually establishing the freedom in 1648, which after many years has become like what we have in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's why I'm a liberal. Thank you. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you, everybody, for being here.